Hello, good day, happy people. Good day, everyone. Uh, welcome to another Kako Tea. It's Kako Tea, and it's Saturday. Um, I am happy to be here with you. I hope you're as happy as I am to be here with me. And I'm so grateful to every single one who turns out, or turns up, or shows up every single week to join me here on Kako Tea. Um, I'm very happy to, to be here and to get to share uh, the lives of various people. You know, um, lately I've been having uh, quite a few women on. It's woman power. It's woman time. And um, today I have another woman on the show with me today. And I promise that we're going to give you an exciting show, one that you will definitely probably remember. Um, my guest who's waiting in the lobby, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about her in just a little bit. I'm just making sure that everything is working on my page. So if you can see me, if you can hear me, if you're able to um, view this video, uh, send me a, a, a hi, say, say what's up. Uh, let me know that you're tuned in. Uh, show some love so that I know that you're locked in. And while you're doing that, make sure you let me know exactly where you're plugged in from. So if you're um, in the US, if you're in Canada, if you're in the UK, if you're in the Caribbean, let me know. You can drop your flag, drop the name of your country. Uh, let me know where you're hailing from. It's Kako tea time, and um, I got my mug, got my Kako right? Um, you know, Christmas is around the corner, so if you need to get your mugs, you know, let, let us know, let us know. We can hook you up with those, those Kako tea mugs. And um, I also wanted to let you guys know before I go any further, um, I get messages all the time about the lipsticks I'm wearing and the lips, the, the, what, what, what lippy you're wearing, JL? Well, um, today I'm actually wearing, I'll get straight to the point so I don't have to answer a kajillion messages. So I'll get straight to the point. I'm actually wearing um, Sasha Intense. It's called um, Intense Matte Lip Velvet. And the color is You Look For That. I don't know what you look for, but you look for something, right? So it's called You Look For That. Um, it's a, a very, it's a, it's a hot purple. I love it. It's, it's very nice and it's available. Uh, those of you who are in Dominica and you want to get it, you can get it at the glam. So just head on over to the glam and tell, um, the ladies out there that you'd like, uh, your look for that. Right. So that is, um, what's going on right now on my lips. So we're getting straight into the show, getting ready to, um, to introduce my guest um before i do that i just want to kind of let you guys know how i know her a, a little a little background on on her i met my guest <laughs> it's an interesting conversation <laughs> it's funny i say it and I'm, I'm i'm laughing i met my guest um at a bar years ago um and uh we had a, a, a very good exchange and I kind of sort of pretended like I didn't know her when I met her years after. Um, but I guess um, we had a memorable um, encounter. So she <laughs> she um, she didn't remind me that she knew me or anything. Or we just we started talking because at the time I was introducing a, a, a cosmetology program to the college. So I'd gone and I'd done uh, quite a bit of research and um, put together an outline and everything. and. The person who was in charge of that or of that department 
just happened to be her. And we met and I spoke to her and I, and I remember I was also um, in the process of doing 767 Girls Rock, the second one. And um, I, after speaking to her, I was like, would you, would you like to be a guest or would you like to be one of the women on 767 Girls Rock? And I don't remember if she initially said yes. I don't think she did say yes. No, she didn't say yes first. Um, she was a little hesitant, but I was very persistent. And <laughs> eventually I got her on the show and um, she was, so if you, if you went to, if you, if you were at 767 Goes Rock 2, um, that was back in 2017, 2017, yeah, 2017, you would have um, met her. It was April of 2017. Yeah, so you would have met her and you would have interacted with her a bit. And uh, she is one of those, you know, she's young. Um, she's done so much in her little years on this earth. Uh, she is a doctor and it's not just because it was bestowed on her. She actually worked her backside for it. Um, not that I am, I'm not ploxing anybody that gets it bestowed on them because I'm not ploxing nobody. I'm just saying she actually worked hard for that. And before hitting the age of 30, she was already, she already had her PhD. And um, she's joining us here. She's done so many things from being, she was the registrar. She's, she's, she has an organization called Create Caribbean, who you'll find out a little bit about um, during the course of the show. And um, I'm happy that I know her. She's one of the, the folks, you know, that I, I know and, and, and she has a great energy. She's so, so intelligent. And without further ado, I'm rambling on. I'm going to introduce my guest today. Um, and joins me right about now. Hi, Shyla. Hi. Hi. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. Welcome to Cracker Tea. Thank you. This is interesting. What, what is it doing? live podcast before i've been on live stream for conferences and things you know but then i don't have any control over that this seems a little more intense <laughs> why you why you think like that? i don't know um i like i end up doing a lot of live radio and i like radio people can't see me but now you're in my house and it's weird yeah but it's yeah. fun it's gonna be fun <laughs> i love radio too just like you yeah. I, I love radio i remember um halfway in my career on radio i would uh, come in pajamas like pajama bonds nobody could see me but once you have to be on somewhere where people are going to see you you have to doll up so um you see my bottom not because if you see my bottom i'm wearing i'm wearing rags and I'm <laughs> it's, it's hilarious uh, <laughs> yeah, they, I, I i look forward to seeing a show on um, behind the scenes of TV or something like that, you know what? Yeah. I or what they wear. I'm sure they probably wear their, their running shoes and <laughs> and some stuff, you know, underneath. And you just see up top, and you're like, okay, they're looking nice today. I like what she's wearing. Yeah. Yeah, and then they have boxers at mm -hmm. the bottom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Welcome to Kako Tea. You have your Kako Tea? Let's see. Let's. See. I have. I have. Cheers. Oh, cheers. Uh, hi. She said hi. Hi. Okay, my cup is actually a mug from the TV show Scandal. I mean, a lot of fandoms. Let's just start there. And uh, when Scandal came on, there were a lot of fans making a lot of um, merchandise. And this is one of the cups that they, they made. So I was really into that. I got one. Hashtag hi. 
<laughs> yes, and it's nice to have you on uh, Kakuti with us. I know you're in Antigua. Right yes, now. I'm in Antigua now. Um, how are you enjoying Antigua, the transition from Dominica to Antigua? <sighs> Man, you know, Antigua is really, I'm, I'm a little nervous to say how much I'm enjoying Antigua because, you know, I love home and I, I moved back to move back to Dominica. I left the United States to move back to Dominica, but I actually like Antigua. You know, I think I'm going to put this out there into the world. My father will be happy. Um, we need to do something about the, the water. We need to help our people. They, we have water and they need some. That's my that only complaint. Antigua. That's my only complaint. Um, but so far it's been good. It's been good. It's a little bit of home and a little bit of um, more of the metropolitan things that I like. So it's a nice balance. And there's an international airport. I wish Liat was cheaper so I could go home because it's half an hour away. But it's a nice balance. I like it. Yeah. Good, awesome. And um, I like to always start my show every single time. You know, we start, you know, we want to get to know who you And sometimes, you know, I read these bios and I'm just like, okay, yeah, they have a lot behind them. But of course, the individual always thinks differently of themselves, irrespective of what they've accomplished and everything. You always find people, you know, have different, different uh, perspectives on who they actually are. Um, so I like to start my show with um, asking my guests, who are you? Huh. I, I, I've been thinking about that. I, I think I am less exciting than my bios tend to portray. I am very, very, uh, I'm homegrown and I'm a homebody. That's the most important thing. I like my home. I like to be inside. I love the outdoors, but I like doing the outdoors alone as well. Um, I am someone who, how do I put that? I am someone who is very comfortable and very much at peace and I have everything I need. So I guess at this stage in my life, this is who I want people to know I am. I have everything I need. I don't need anything. I'm happy with that. I'm content. Um, I am also someone who works really hard and is proud of that, that I work really hard for myself, but I also really work hard for other people, people I care about and who are close to me, but people I don't even know. And I, I have made a career out of it and I'm really proud of that. Um, I'm also... I think I am a little more what I I wouldn't call it spiritual, but I would definitely call it in touch with my um, all the senses of the world in a way. I've become a lot more connected to the to to my intuition, to my gut senses, to what the universe is telling me about how to make decisions in my life and those things. So I've become a lot more connected to that than I was. I used to be very heady, very cerebral in my decision-making and my thinking. And I've learned a lot over time to trust emotion a little more, to trust uh, what, what's happening around me a little more. So that's where I am now at this point in my life. This is who I am. Mm. Well, well, nice to meet this person. <laughs> I just want to. I just want to give you some um, of what is happening in, in people are sending in their comments. Um, so D Sugar says, "Irie, my besties are." Um, that's Denise. She's should be resting, but she's there. <laughs> she's getting a side eye. Juanita. Hi, Juanita. And we have. These are my schoolmates. 
when it was on your show, wasn't she? Was yes, she was. She was last yeah. week. Yes, yes. I had the pleasure of meeting her. And we have uh, Rena Ann coming back to Charlotte. You did prettier with me. Oh, thank you. I would like to think so. This is my best time. Yeah. You know, I don't miss the teens and I don't miss being 20 in my 20s. I really love being in my 30s. That's another thing. It's really a good, good place. I'm happy. Okay, D, I'm going to warn you in advance. You don't have to comment on anything. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, JL. Thanks for looking out because I wouldn't have to tell her myself. She's already starting to tell you your chakras are very aligned. You know, you know, she's, you know, Denise has been one of the people who's been testing out, you know, this whole spiritual universe thing. I've been this. Um, and she gets annoyed with me for talking about the chakras, but every time, every time I'm right, every time <laughs> telling them they need to really get in touch with their chakras and, and get it together, align themselves. <laughs> so yeah, she's, she's, she's right about that. The other thing about me, I just want to say, because it will come up. I have a, re I'm really funny, but my, my humor is an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> the people who work with me, especially my interns get a dose of it all the time. I think I get my sense of humor from my father because it's very, very shady. Um, my father will walk into a room and all I tell people anytime I do something that I wouldn't want my parents to know, but I'm like, my father is going to laugh at me. He's not going to be upset. He's not going to do anything crazy. He's going to laugh at me. He's going to be like, how can a person with this much sense make do something so ridiculous? And this is really how I have lived my life in fear of my father laughing at me. And therefore I, um, I also do that to my interns and they find it both frustrating and hilarious. So it's an interesting time working with them and being myself. <laughs> Gonna be herself today. Right? Yeah. Gonna be herself. I am going to try. I, am I getting all the tea? Um, no, there will never be a time when you will get all the tea. Oh my gosh, like, <laughs> you gotta give all the tea, everything's on the uh -uh. table. Mm -mm. We'll see about that, <laughs> guys. Uh, don't forget when you, when you log in, or if you're looking at it right now, um, I need you to hit the share button, so hit the share button and share with someone so that they can actually get a little bit of Shyla's humor, um, the aquatic part. <laughs> um, so make sure you hit the share button on your end. And also, if you miss the show for whatever reason, you might have to jump off, you're unable to come, um, watch the entire show, you can always come back in 24 hours. It will be available on my website. That is um, jljoseph.com. Um, that's my name, .com. Um, so you can get that after um, 24 hours uploaded there and the podcast version of it is on iTunes, uh, Castbox, and this event. So you can check that out after um, the show ends. We're here with uh, Dr. Shyla Esprit and um, I feel like interviewing you today is like I know everything. I kind of sort of feel like that. Um, I don't know if, I don't know, well, part of it is because when I did 767 Girls Rock, I had to interview a lot of people around you. Yeah. And I, I got to interview her mom, and I got to interview her dad, and I got to, um, your best friend, um, that's um, Rawa. Mm -hmm. I, I, I got to interview a few, your sister, and to, it's almost like you get into the person's life without the person telling you about their life. 
So I got to know a lot about her. So if I feel a little, if I sound a little super comfortable, it's just because I kind of sort of know a little bit. Um, not everything, but enough to, to get by. If somebody would I'll probably be able to tell them, you know. Right. Um, and um, I when I, when I was putting together the questions, I was like, boy, I have to actually reach out to her because I was like, is it okay for me to ask about this? And it, there was nothing of that in her bio. I just knew and I just wanted to make sure, you know, that, hey, it's okay for me to ask this. It's okay for me to ask. Okay, it's not okay for me to ask this. Okay. All right. So I think we, <laughs> we're on the same page now. Uh, but yeah. I, I know and I'm, I'm sure the viewers and the listeners will want to know what was little Shiloh like oh my um I was the same I'm nothing if not consistent so I was very much um I was very much to myself I used to be a, a according to reports I ha I'd have no evidence of this I used to cry a lot when I was little but I think it was because I was a crystal filler you know what they call that I was sick all the time um, I always had something. To this day, I always have something. Something's always going on. Um, so I was very fragile, and that meant I was protected a lot, but which meant I had more time to read books once I could. Um, so I spent a lot of time reading, a lot of time by myself. I wasn't very talkative then. I would say I have developed an outsider personality more and more as I got older, and especially because of work. Um, because I teach, um, so I was very, very reserved, but I don't, when I was required to, or not required to have an opinion, I had very strong ones, and that has been consistent for most of my life. Um, I was precocious, I, in my, I think we talked about this in second six, seven, how people in my house used to call me Miss Charles because I acted like Mamo for a long time, and I was, I thought I was in charge of everything. My grandmother at one point called me Charles in charge. I love the show, so I'm not offended. <laughs> Um, because I had this sense, I was the first ch grandchild and I was the first child, um, the first child of my parents. So I think that had a lot to do with how I was positioned in my family. But I also grew up in a house with a lot of people. And for a long time, I was always the smallest person in the house. So I felt like I was had to, to make space for myself because everyone was grown and had their own things. And I was the, the little one in the house where I lived for the most part. So, um, that those two things combined made it very easy for me to have to um, to assert myself when I needed to because I knew how to be comfortable in silence. But I also knew sometimes that I had to fight to be seen and heard, and I did that. Yeah. And um, when you were young, what did you want to be when you got older? Did you always want to be an educator? Did you always? Uh, no, I wanted to be a writer. Um, I'm still a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. I didn't imagine i never imagined i wanted to be anything else at some point i really really love science particularly physics and um astronomy and i have a i don't like to talk about it because every there's a whole side of my family that's really really talented and have made careers in math and i'm really i also really really love the math but i didn't want to do that and i didn't want to feel i preempted that pressure of wanting to go that way so I never even talked about it, but I was really good at math and I really enjoyed it very much. So, and it kind of came back in my life later on, but I did at some point think I wanted to do something with physics and with science, but that went away very, very quickly because I wasn't really paying attention in physics class at all. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
at that time we didn't have physics you know they make you take science and then you have like one year in school where you test out the subjects and then you have to pick which ones you want yes. the testing out period didn't really go so well for physics um so yeah i killed that and i also knew that i wanted to read books for a living in some way and write about them so i did it i just i just went that way but i always knew i wanted to be a writer i've been writing for a very long time and i i made it happen even when i thought it people thought it wasn't really a career that would sustain you i i found a way to make sure that writing um writing professionally was always part of my my life and my work whatever i did you mentioned um before that you grew up in a household with a lot of people uh, but it wasn't just a lot of people um dominated by women how was yes. it like you know all of the men like all this estrogen <laughs> my house was loud i always remember that i come from a family of loud people and that's okay because we are also very expressive and open people um i don't think there was anything growing up that we were we were kept from or conversations that were hidden from us in my house and i say this as a house of women that um i didn't grow up with having a lot of respectability in my house people were worried about um what to say and how to say it and how you how people will see you and that type of thing i didn't have any of that except you never heard that women are supposed to be seen and not no everybody heard us <laughs> <laughs> maybe my grandmother was the only person in my house and my mom my mom is not very loud except when necessary um but maybe my grandmother was the quietest person in the house we were and i think it was just a lot of people in my house and everyone was talking and everyone was talking at the same time and that's cultural a lot of caribbean people households are like this um but in my house i had there were four generations living in my house at one point and that was a really important my grand my great grandmother and her sister-in-law both lived in my house one lived to about 87 or 88 my great grandmother lived to and the, um my my great aunt her sister-in-law lived to about 98 if i remember correctly and i was already a teenager when they passed away so it was a long time that i lived in a home where i had several generations of women in the house and my great grandmother suffered from a mental illness when she was well in her in her prime and it was always interesting to me how i would end up in the stories about her mental illness and she would take me places with her to like go down the street and stuff and i was like 3 years old i was just go and like hey we're going to hang out what do i know and so that was those were things that made it very easy for me to understand some certain things about our society and about our culture that were hit would necessarily taboo subjects or things that people had all these stereotypes about were very very comfortable things that we that happened in my household that people got to talk about but also living with a lot of women also teaches you i as i got older i started asking questions about where the men were i my uncle lived in the house with us and then in my generation we also for a long time had only one boy and my cousin is in new york and we all lived together in new york with one boy in the house too. So it was always interesting to me that dynamic where the only boy who is raised with these women has to suffer through us all this time, right? Um but it was also nurturing. It was also very a very safe space to be and also validating in a way that all of these women in my life never offered me something different about what it meant to be a woman, right? I think that's the most important thing that happened in that household. I saw people who were caretakers and housewives i saw people who were single or having children and all my aunts 
who basically are the reason I have this life, um, all did something different and managed their lives in very, very different ways. They're not the same person. They all have different interests and they all a different type of success story to me, right? Um, and so always having those models around meant that I had options. I could, I could pull from different experiences to understand what types of decisions were, you know, sometimes people, I need to be more like my, my mother and maybe be a little more proper and respectable in, in public. Yeah, your mom's like that. She's very proper, right? And, and she gets a lot of flack from me from that because I study post-colonial studies. I don't believe in respectability at all, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, my mom is very, very proper. Everybody who meets me tells me about the proper lady in the church, right? That's her thing. But I also know when... I remember when she told me what she, she told me she wanted to start off her business. I'm not going to disclose that. But she told me she wanted to... And, when she told and me you know what it was about, right? I was like, that is so you! So, so respectable. So respectable. She'd be so good at it because it's you so would. Hard, Right? Um, and then, but I also have moments where I want to be like Auntie Dawn and, and be ready at all times because you might get some words if you ask for it. You know, there... And there, uh, there are times for that, right? Um, and my other aunts are the same way. And my grandmother is also, I never saw my grandmother. The one thing I always wished for that I don't have yet, and I, I talk about this, this week was a particular challenge for that, is the type of grace where I can move through uh, an event or some emotion or something that happens and just be like, whatever. You know, that sort of temperance and grace she had mastered and it had it must have come from i imagine now as an adult person with a lot more an intellectual sense of what my grandmother must have gone through in her time it must have come from a place of repression a lot of times so i don't necessarily envy that experience but i certainly want my grandmother was certainly happy and content with herself and i certainly long for that place where people um where i can master the temperance because my petty wins every time <laughs> and I try so hard, you know, to master the temperance. I try. Um, my wins all the time. <laughs> oh my God, it's a it's a real problem, you know. I have yeah. I try to align my chakras, but sometimes sometimes it wins. So I that mean, is what, yeah, that's one of the things I really wish I had. Sometimes told you know yeah you need to like stop the pettiness like just let it slide. I'm like no you never let it slide. Let it slide. Come on. Sometimes you have to let it slide. But sometimes you know. Well, most times I don't. <laughs> I don't go anywhere. I stay home. I get audible badges. This is all the fun I get. Your whole deal. Yeah. 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 We got some interaction coming in. Um uh people are shouting you out. Uh, Shari Maroney, Pascal Maroney saying oh, I miss Shari. Lovely lady. Uh she made work bearable. Shyla, you are missed. Um, and then we also have um Melody Hodge. He's saying, I've learned so much from Dr. Esther. So giving, caring, understanding, intelligent. I love you. Oh, I promise hi, Chris. We promise to try and get as much as the, or at least bring up as much of the comments that come through yeah. uh, through the course of the show. So if you keep letting it pop, populate, I will pull them out as they come and, and hopefully share with the rest of okay. the Okay. Um, now, uh, you, you told me a little bit about you know, living in a household with a bunch of women. Uh, you told me your favorite thing was obviously reading. Um, I remember speaking to your, to your, was it your mom? Was it your dad? It might have been your dad. 
Was it your dad that had an estate? His family had an estate? Yes, my dad. It was your... So tell me about life on the estate. You know, <laughs> this is one of the times when you cannot have all the tea. What happens in Bell stays in Bells. Um, <laughs> we have fun. Um, I am from a... I, I also wanted to make... I'm glad you brought that up because I did grow up in a land of women, but I also have a really good relationship with my father and um, the men. Like... <laughs> I don't see it, but everybody no, agrees. So, his child, like he's here. Oh yes, he, he, I am his. I belong to him. But I'm, and I think it's more about the gestures and so on. But um, I, I, I'll believe y'all. People say that. Um, my father and I are very close, and I'm also very close to my father's family. And I'm very lucky to have been co-parented by people who can stand each other for more than five minutes. It's amazing to have parents who are actually friends who, who have, I mean, my parents had me when they were very young. And so this is a very unlikely um, success story about co-parenting, right? And I like to tell people about this particular part of it. I, I could have turned out the way I turned out under different circumstances. That's not it. But I think one of the major things was the way my parents got along and, and interacted um, throughout my life. But my father's influence and the influence of my father's family was very strong, and I have a very a very close relationship with them. And that's my grandparents owned property in Bells where they ran um, when banana was and citrus were um, the economy drivers. They had a, an estate where they had a plantation of bananas and citrus, and so we spent quite a bit of time there. My father worked on the estate for a while when I was very young. Um, and my cousins, I have about 37 first cousins on my father's side. I counted the other day. It's a lot of us. Um, and so there was, during the holidays, especially summer and Christmas breaks, they would put us on a bus. My uncle has a taxi service and my uncle always had a bus and we would get on the bus and you would, you, you did not, you could not want to go if you wanted, but it's the day after school, you get on the bus and you are going to Bell's. You know, I remember every year my mother would be upset. She's like, you're not going back because you come back sick. You have a cold, you have bronchitis or something. And then next summer, she's like, get on the bus. <laughs> get, <laughs> get on the bus. Um, so we get on the bus and there are about 15 of us in the house at one time. This house, I'm really, really sad about my, my the, one of the saddest things about Maria was us losing that house um, because we had so many memories there. But we would have 15 of us in the house at a time, my grandparents alone with us for weeks at a time, running around on acres of land, getting into trouble, cutting down the man's trees. I didn't do it, my cousins did. Um, <laughs> getting in business, going in the river 10,000 times without supervision and all kinds of things. And as we got older, you know, I, I learned from my parent, from my dad and his siblings how little of that they actually had, even though they had the same space when they were growing up, because you know that time people used to send their children away to town to go to school. So they were all kind of separated at these formative years of their lives, and they didn't really get to spend that much time with each other. So they made sure when we were growing up that we had that, and they sort of made it a routine and a tradition that we had to spend this much time together, even when we didn't want to, right? And so, and especially the 1982 years, was a really big year for us with babies. And so my cousins, I have about five or six cousins, we were all born in the same calendar year in a 12 month period. And so we also had 
major events together, First Communion, Confirmation, Graduations, all of these things we celebrated together. And so um, we always had this experience where we were forced to be in the same space and learn to be our own friends and be our own support system and be there for each other. It also made us really closer to our family, um, our and generationally, I mean, we got to connect with our parents in ways that I don't think with the busy lives that we have, we are always likely to do, to stay connected to what our parents are going through and what we're going through and make sure those things are in conversation with each other. But we always held accountable to that, to make sure that we're responsible for checking in, showing up. You don't have to want, we're grown people now and Antiva can call and say, we everybody get on the, and go. Everybody's got to get up and go. And you will be mad the whole time. And you will be you will be rolling your eyes and saying stuff about how that lady think it doesn't understand everybody's grown, but you will be going because that's what you do, right? Um, and even now, the best thing that has come out of that is my cousins and I still do this. They're supposed to be somewhere together right now, listening to the show or watching it live on um, the stream, but I, but they're probably being delinquent and not getting together on Saturdays like I like they're supposed to. Um, wow. Yes. But um, yeah, so we, we still maintain that tradition. We try our best to get together once a week and make sure we spend time with each other and decompress. And, you know, you can have friends. I have friends. I have very, very close friends. I can actually count them, about five of people who are really, really close to me right now in my life who are not my family members. But the best friends I have are my family. And that's because that was created on this estate. We had a lot of fun there. As adults, we've had a lot of fun there to the point where our parents have had to have conversations with us about being responsible adults. So, <laughs> yes. So um, we, we, that, that place is very special to us because our grandparents made it for a legacy and we've treated it as a legacy. And I'm, I'm happy that we, it's also a place I used to go to a lot by myself. Um, I spent a lot of time there writing and connecting with that, those, my chakras, aligning them. Um, it's a really good place for that. I like nature, I like being in nature. And um, that was one of the most important places for me when I moved back to Dominica to help me kind of get connected with where I wanted to go with my life and what I wanted to do. So, yeah. We have somebody, Anik Bruno. Huh? Oh, whoa, see, bougie, that bougie. Yeah, bougie. You're right. my, my former staff at DSC is coming on and, um, Trying to embarrass me. Ah, did I call you bougie? Yes, and he calls me bougie at work. Yeah. Why? Why? Why would she call you bougie? Why not? Have we met? <laughs> you bad and bougie. <laughs> Have we met? <laughs> I'm so bougie, it got me in trouble. Um, oh my god, you are so bougie. But it's not even. <laughs> but it's not even about. Let me tell you about the bougie thing because I think people, people misunderstand. People spend a lot of time projecting their insecurities about their place in life on you. Well, I don't mean to cut you out. Yeah. I remember you used a word in 767, and it's called sophisticated. Sophisticated ratchet. Ratchet, right. Yeah. So that is how I've always looked at you. Like, yeah. Said that. And yeah. With me. So but I don't completely bougie you more like a sophisticated ratchet kind of a person yeah i like i like high and low and i and I, it's okay to like high and low and i also and I, I think as a culture we are very aspirational people we tell our children to school we want them to do well we tell them to get the highest degrees we are happy every time you go on dominica news online you see the story about dominican successful blah 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 
And then when we, when we say, okay, I'm standing in this, I'm saying, I like these things, I am enjoying them. This is the fruits of my labor. People I make, are, I I, that, it's not even, a, yeah, I like, I like making money because it allows me to buy the things that I really like. But those things are taste. Those things are about my personal taste and my personal interests, right? They're not, uh, they're not saying anything else about you or anyone else. They're saying, these are the things I like for myself and these are the things I want to have. And I'm not relying on anyone else to make them happen for me, but I like them. I'm going to stand in them and I'm going to enjoy them. And it's amazing when you step out in the world and you present yourself in this way, how it makes people uncomfortable. And, for, and it makes me sad because you know what? I want people to be comfortable. When my students interact with me, I want them to see that and say, you know what? That's, that's pride in, the, in work. That's confidence in ability. That's me not shying away. Why do people get to walk into a room who haven't done any, who've inherited their parents' money and have had things handed to them, get to walk into a room and be bad and bougie, and I get to shy away and act like, well, just because I came from Mao, and I love being from Mao, I, I hey, represented from Mao, because, you know, I love, I, I, I would still go to Mao and sit by crumbs and drink my beer with Roy. That still happens. But why can't, why don't I get to enjoy and stand in it? Why do I have to feel some type of way to say, hey, I like nice things, and this is where I'm standing today, and I'm going to enjoy that. And no, I don't want regular water today. I want my water sparkling and flavored, and that's fine. Be, be unapologetically you. Right, but it's, uh, it's also about we work so hard for these things, and then when we step into it, somebody out there who's also working hard for these things is watching you and say, ah, she's trying to have these things. How dare her? I mean, it's counterproductive and it's counterintuitive, and we need to check ourselves when we're putting our insecurities about our place in, on other people, because I don't feel any type of way about that. I'm happy to be bougie. I was practically born that way. Ask my parents. I was bougie when I didn't even have stuff, when I didn't even work for money, and I was broke. You were bougie. So even now, like, yeah. So I think, I think it's important to say that because I want people to be aspirational, but I also want them to be proud of that. I want people to be, we don't have to stay in the same place that we were. It's okay for us to grow. It's okay for us to change. It's okay for us to want more and want different things and for that to not get into, in the way or um, step on anybody else's toes or interfere with other people's success. Because guess what? When I am walking up, I am pulling people up behind me. And that's always the most important thing. And, and that right? is how it should be. And that is right. always. Yeah. And, and we should, we should, we need to stop that nonsense. Really, really, we need to stop that. Yeah. Um, and I want to say to you, Dominica, probably when we're talking about a lot of other things across the Caribbean, um, probably um, the show, I'm probably wondering what are they talking about? Uh, but it was just an exchange about an event. Um, that, that was happening the cost of the event was rather elevated for some and 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 dr espin was fine with it and she just voiced her opinion as to being okay with the cost well i wasn't even okay with the cost like that's the that's the funny thing, thing about the conversation um reading is fundamental and i will say i will begin with a petty statement and not be petty about it again because it's serious you know, I teach a class called Digital Humanities Research. And in that class, I teach my students all about how technology um, helps us or has transformed our lives and made our, our interactions with humanity, our, our hu human selves in various ways, more or less convenient and productive, right? There's an entire class around that. Part of the class is having a public Twitter. My students are on Twitter. I tweet. 
um, my students follow me. So that means my former students are also following me. So the audience I'm, I was speaking to in this conversation or in my implied audience, because I was only speaking to one person, understood that they know me, they know my intention, they know my um, spirit, they know why and from what place this conversation was coming. It was a public post and everyone has a right to see it and share it as they like, right? But my point was this, people, the people, the age group that was complaining about the price of the party was generally what I saw in my, in my eyes were 18 to 25 year olds that I felt, okay, there's another party that you guys, when I was, when I was your age, I was going to parties that were that age appropriate, right? Or not necessarily age appropriate, but cost appropriate, because if somebody prices something at a certain price, they're trying to tell, let me tell you something, Oprah goes to Saks and people follow her around. There's class politics tied to every single thing in economics. Mm -hmm. Everything you put a price on has a, an, a social implication. So my point was just to basically highlight that and to say, of course, the party is tell, sending us a message about who, who the audience might be because it is set as a certain price. When it is set at a different price, it opens up the door for more people to enter. So if it's set at that price, possibly it means that it's for a certain person who can afford off the bat to have this, this to afford to go to this party. And that was the point I was making in the conversation. I was saying, if this is a party you cannot afford, it's not crying you down personally. It's not saying that's just not the party for you. There will be, an, and there is another party, right? That's more affordable from what I understand. Now the conversation goes on and me being my snarky self, talking to someone who knows me, who knows my intention, who knows my sense of humor, and who also understand the conversation I'm having. I make a comment using keywords, signifiers, that indicate that I'm specifically talking about age dynamics and for me, not class. I say children, I tell them rugrats. My students know I talk about them like that. <laughs> they know, I tell them in their face. And many of them who were following me on Twitter at the time also knew that I was talking about them and they didn't mind. So my comment was, was also pointing more specifically at, I don't necessarily want to, at my stage in life, I'm 36 years old. I have been working professionally for some time. I work how many hours a week and a day? When I want have time off, I don't want to go to the same party and have the strength in your seen me in the party, miss <laughs> Papa Met, no. Right? Um, and so that was the spirit of my original comment, right? And if someone what I what I was what was unfortunate about this this situation was that no one asked me on my post what I said or to clarify, or no one said, I don't agree with you, you're being classist on my post, right? No one said that to me. No one afforded me an opportunity to engage in conversation about that. It was taken off the platform and brought into another platform. And then I was, um, then I became a celebrity, apparently. All because I said, I don't, I find Fashion Nova look like house clothes and I still do. I sign my name to everything I put online because I teach students how to do this all the time. I also find Yeezys look like um, Bowman and Balmain <laughs> looks like Bowman. And half of the, I, I, sometimes one year, your favorite designer might put out a clothesline that looks like Bowman. I sign my name to that. Ask Crystal, ask Melody Hodge. She'll tell you about the time I told her. I said, you look cute in it, but Bowman. I, I still find it look like, and I have a right to find, that was saying nothing about anybody else, but what Shyla Esprit likes and what Shyla Esprit doesn't like, right? So if you, if you perceive that as a statement about you and your choices, then I'm really sad for you that you find a, a person like me who's probably going to be actually wearing Bowman on New Year's Eve worried about projecting your stuff on me because I don't I don't care about that. And my point remains the same. Some, if it's not for you, someone said, 
someone says Papa Met, and I think that's where we leave it. Right. <laughs> I think that's where we leave it. <laughs> I we have, like, I conversation, so I would have had a chance to explain that because everybody has your nose flat up. Yeah. Your nose flat up. No, I, you know it's important because people think that you know people. It, it's one thing to have an internet platform and to be able to say whatever you say, but will you say it to my face? Will you say it if you knew all the other things? Why? Why wasn't you? Why wasn't the same energy being applied to all the other posts I made about how my students are working and how much money I'm trying to raise to make sure that they can do study abroad trips? No one visits me at my boring things, but the one time, and you see, I don't even talk about Dominican things. We'll get to that. Right for this reason, <laughs> why, why the one time that I tend, I, 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 I dare to dabble in a conversation that has anything to do with you and your entertainment, because it's about that's what you perceive it as. That this is the one thing you. I have said a lot of controversial things. I have said controversial things about the roads, about education in our country. You are making noise about the road for right? weeks. For weeks, I have said things about our political decision making about our living wage as a country, about the way some people have access to funds to support their businesses and some don't. I have said very, very hit, hard hitting, sign my name to those opinions. And those opinions are very valid. And I haven't seen a single screenshot going around saying that person is wrong, let me hang them off the tree, right? So if there is a right to freedom of expression and there is a right to you having an opinion and countering me, and I appreciate that because good arguments require um, refutation, but I will say there's also my right, as you will see happening on the internet, to let you, your company and your organizations know that you are not standing for their values. That includes your employers, the universities you attend. And if you look at the trends on social media, because I study that, I can tell you so many people have been losing their jobs and been kicked out of school for similar incidents. So people take these things for a game and I will let them have their fun because everybody needs 15 minutes. But I just want to remind everybody that social media use is also a responsibility. And we, I would like us to, to drive that energy into more productive things for our society, our culture, because I think we as a generation and the generation coming after us really deserve for us to have more productive. Parties are nice and I'm happy to talk about them. I really think we should invest in our entertainers like Asa Banton. I used to not like Asa Banton and then now I'm a fan, right? <laughs> see, see how that happened. Right? Change my mind. Exactly. Why don't you? Right. Yeah. Um, I think I think we need to be more pointed in our our energy and our outrage because we have things to be mad about. Certainly, where I want to spend my money is not one of them. Were you always like this? Were yes. Like this, even in school. I what, what, like this. What would people see about you? When you oh my God! It's the same problem in school. Ask my teachers. <laughs> They never had a chance. It's the mouth. It's me and my mouth again and again, every time. You get into um, trouble. No, I didn't get into trouble. I think I should have gotten into a lot more trouble um, than I did. I think you know, culturally, we t we validate smart people a lot. Yes. And, I, and as an educator, as an educator, I am I have faced my comeuppance. I will tell you that much, because. It is frustrating to have a really smart person in your face who think they know everything and still have a lot to learn. And you're trying to help this person get to the next step and to kind of hone in on those talents and those skills. And they are so feeling like they're already there that they they cannot, you cannot help them, right? And I 
I feel that at some point in my life, I was there. I don't think to that great extent because I was always somebody who was curious. So I always asked questions and like to learn, but I also know that I was, I was not as forgiving of other people who were slower. When I say slower or who had different types of intelligence or what I perceived to be people who had difference from me in a intellectual way, right? Um, I was very, very sensitive to difference of all kinds before that. And I think for, for the culture we were in, that was very progressive at the time. But when it came to like people responding to um, in a classroom setting, I was not patient with my peers. Um, and I also, I, I also didn't feel challenged in school a lot. Um, so it made it for a frustrating time for some of my teachers, but most of my teachers, especially when I got to high school, um, were really, really good at helping me to turn that energy into something really, really useful and positive. That's good. That's good. What yeah. would you say you, or describe you as? Like, as a teacher? What would my, I didn't know. Actually say you were, what type of person would they say you were? My you teachers? Have, you have your own version as to who you were, but what would they say you were? Because I, I know my teachers said, um, like I, my report card always said, very good student, talks a lot from like grade one until I left school. <laughs> very good student, talks a lot. <laughs> very good student. My <laughs> teachers would say that I didn't try enough in high school. I could have, I my report card, I still have some of them. My report card always said, um, very, very good student, um, needs to apply herself more. Um, that's in high school. And you, can you believe that? I wasn't trying in high school at all. Um, and they also would say that I was very strong-willed and opinionated. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Um, you left Dominica um, at a young age. How old were you? And what did you actually think? I had just turned 18. Um, I, I had finished high school and I was going to what was then the Clifton Dupinney Community College for about a year. But I, my aunts that I lived, my aunts whom I lived with had migrated to the US a couple of years before. And my mom had moved as well. My mom left and she was living in the Virgin Islands. So I knew I was at a point where I didn't want to stay in Dominica very long. You know that teenage itch to go. Um, I also was feeling very lost as a teenager. I, I hated being a teenager. I hated the, all the emotional angst that came with it. I didn't like anything and anyone. I was a very a sourpuss as a teenager, to be honest with you. Um, and I just wanted to go and I spent a lot of time reading and watching TV and I was just really focused on that and getting, getting out and going to a place where I felt I could be challenged. And that was one of the things. When I got to the college, I was not applying myself. I was not interested in A-levels. I was not interested in anything that was happening at the college. I literally played for an entire year. Ask Mr. Volney. Um, he still talks about it. I was, I was really nice, but I was also playing a lot. Um, so I applied to school. I did my SATs and I left. I went to school in New York. Um, and while I was there, I got, I met a woman who I didn't, well, she was my teacher. She was a retired adjunct um, professor and she just happened to be teaching my first literature class. And she, I didn't re I didn't know that she was on the board of the school, of the foundation at the time that she was teaching me. And when I started, that was my first semester. 
um, she basically nominated me for one of the, the the high scholarship at the school. And so I was in right away and I had made, I was in a new community. I was in the scholars program. I was, um, I had sort of made a home for myself in New York um, at Brooklyn College and had a very, very good time going there, even if it wasn't my first choice. And I wanted to go with my friend Ria to school in Florida and my family was like, well, this is expensive. You have a house here, you can live here. Um, I was kind of mad about going to New York at first because I felt it was me having to remember that I come from a family where other people need things and I have siblings coming behind me and all of these things. But you know what? It turned out to be the best decision I ever made. Brooklyn College kind of changed my life and the direction of my life in so many ways. Um, and I would have done the same thing again if I had to do it all over. Wow, what was it like being in this new environment? I remember the first time we went downtown. I'd been to the U.S. before, but I hadn't been to Manhattan like that. And I went downtown with my aunt. She worked at the World Trade Center. That was before the, the attacks in, at 9-11. And she said to me something I will never forget. She's like, you didn't even look up. You were so unimpressed. And that was my disposition in general. <laughs> she was like... <laughs> you know, because I was so... I came, When I got off the plane, it was like, 18 degrees outside. It was freezing that, that winter. I came up in winter, I went to school. My aunt gave me a bus map, a train map, a street map, and a unlimited Metro card and said, um, we are going to work so you can have these nice things. Have fun. Figure it out. So I, have, I was out of school. I didn't start school for a month. And so I went all around New York City getting into business. I had no getting lost on the train buying books, I had no money to buy. I bought, I, every little pocket change I had, I bought books with it. My aunt worked at the, when there was a Borders bookstore at the, at the World Trade Center mall. And I used to go there and read while I waited for her and stuff like that for free. I discovered that you could stay in the bookstore and not buy anything. And that, would, that changed my life. That, it revolutionized reading for me because I sat in the bookstore all day and didn't have to buy anything and nobody kicked me out. It was amazing. I loved America. Right. That was the greatest thing that happened to me when I moved. No one would put you out the store. So um, that was exciting. And but New York, also, then 9-11 happened and I was nine months in. I was a freshman in college. I didn't have any credit transfer. I started fresh. I was 18 like every other high schooler coming out of New York. So I had a very traditional experience at college um, in the United States. Um, and it completely changed my impression of the world. You know, it was a, a very hard thing to go through uh, when you're such a young age in a, a different space and so vastly different from from what we were used to in Dominica, right? So I think 9-11 definitely had a, a changing impact on my life and the way I sort of, the, the seriousness with which I treated politics. Um, before I was in Dominica, I was arguing with children in class about politics, about Freedom Party and UWP and things like in grade six and grade seven and thinking I was, I was gangster, you know, and it sort of changed the, changed the weight of the impression of, the, of, the, of global politics. And at that time I had come to New York, I had decided to major in journalism because it would allow me to write and travel. And I was minoring in Spanish as well because I had some French in my background. So I wanted to do international journalism like Christian Amanpour. And I, um, I, that completely kind of changed for me. I was like, okay, the world is a the real stuff is going on out here. This this is is a big deal. But other than that, once things calm down in the city, I will say that I made the best. Anybody who is listening to this, 
who plans to or is in New York City for college, do everything that you can. It's an amazing place to go to school. Um, it's super expensive <laughs> to live, um, and it's always expensive, but it's really good. You have really good things for students that you can take advantage of. And I took advantage of every single one of them. I went to Broadway for $20. I saw everything I could see. I went to Lincoln Center for $20. I went to the Met Opera for $20. I went to the museum for 25 cents. I did all of it and had the same cultural experience. And it really, really Im impacted the, the type of access I had to people, to networks, to travel, just to culture, to different types of people and made me validated that I could be somebody and nobody at the same time. That's the one thing I always love about New York. It's my second favorite place in the world after Dominica, is that you can be anybody, you can be somebody, or you can be nobody at all, and it will all be okay. You, you, um, you didn't just study in the U.S., also work. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that experience, transitioning from the university out so I spent a lot of time in school, a lot of time. <laughs> when I left, when I when I finished in New York, um, I graduated very, I graduated valedictorian of my class, and that was a really good experience. And I I got to travel a lot, and I was I was riding high. I left. I went to University of Virginia to do my master's degree, and that was the first culture shock I had in the United States, is being at UVA, just because. UVA is Thomas Jefferson's university, and it everything that is em, embodied in all the things we know we see and hear on the news about the problematic race relations in the United States. Um, UVA is a very good case study to follow that over time. Um, they they have what I used to call when I got there, when I got there for the first time, especially after they had recruited us to come to that school. I used to call it pornographic wealth. You know, it's obscene, right? Um, but there's also so many problems. And that was the first time I really had people look at me and be, I, I grew up three blocks from Flatbush in, 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 um, in, when I was in New York, right? I came of age, I turned 21 in New York City, like where else would you, nothing happens to you here as a black person, right? Except, the, except things you make happen to yourself, mm -hmm. was my impression of the world. And I, I had this little enclave, I had Dominican friends who were there, um, Juanita and some of other people, we used to spend a lot of time together. Um, at that point, we had a lot of fun and we all went to school and we were minding our business and doing our work. But you step outside of that and all of a sudden you become someone else. And I grew up with a lot of understanding about um, black studies, black power, all the kinds of things going on with racism and race relations because of my, my family and the kind of intellectual background of my family, especially on my father's side. Those things were, I was aware of those things. I was, I, I, I feel like I was always woke. People have a, a, a different idea about me when they see me because I'm bougie, right? <laughs> but I, I always had the sensibility about race and race. And I was, I was always wanting to learn more and do more about it. But I really got to feel it and see it in, in action in, a, in my real life, not just in books, in this space. Um, not to say that I had any particularly vile racist things happen to me personally. But it's what, what I want people to understand is some, most of the time, it's not going to be a vile racist thing that happens to you. Most of the time, it's going to be subtle. It's going to be microaggression. It's going to be things that make you wonder if you're making it up or if it's in your head or if they really said that. Um, I had students 
when I went to teach for the first time, but I was really young, I have to admit, um, in a classroom asked me what qualified me to be standing in front of the class, you know, white boys asking me that question. I had all different versions of this happen to me. I had people in class where I was sitting in class with, with guys and, you know, they literally act like I'm not there, but asked me outside of class to help them understand the material. There was one boy I called Mr. America all the time. I know where he is now. I see him at conferences. You do. He, he's him and I'm me. But, you know, um, those things happen. And then I, after my master's degree, I went to University of Maryland and it's a big research university. The student population is 80,000 people. Um, it was a big school, but I was definitely in a more, and yeah, yeah. I was definitely in a more diverse environment um, as far as my, the department, English department is concerned. And I was, I had people there who cared about my success. Um, and also it was a more liberal space that I was in that allowed me to, yes, both get challenges from white women a lot um, in my time there. A lot of people asked writing things about how we were, you know, getting all the funding. Because, you know, for most PhD programs, you are fully funded. If you're in the United States programs, when they accept you, you get funding for your program either through fellowships or through a combination of ways like teaching assistantships and research assistantships and things like that. But your tuition is taken care of, your health insurance, and you get a stipend, you're definitely going to have to supplement that, but you do get funding. And so there were a lot of debates going on when we were in school about, you know, the white people, the white women particularly writing and saying, you know, they, they felt that the black women in our program, there were about 10 of us out of a program of 200 students, graduate students. That's not a lot. And yet we were hyper visible, right? So these are the things that, that institutional racism looks like. People always think it's about um, labeling things ghetto and all these things, but real racism happens in those moments where you are being made, you are being called a scholarship kid when you had to qualify three times harder than everyone else to be in this program. You know, and I'm, I've always been me, I've always been unapologetically me like this. So I went and I took over the student organization in both schools I was, so both black, the black student organization and the English department organization, I was the president for a while from both of them. Um, you're gonna have to deal with me, right? And I think part of that comes from the West Indian part of my life that I grew up in a place, not only where black people rule themselves, my friend, Rewan, I make this joke all the time. I come from a place where black people rule themselves, but also, I, right, right. Um, Eugenia Charles was prime minister for most of my, my formative years. And that made a big difference in how I, I, I asserted myself in spaces. I can tell people that the influence of having a female prime minister um, who identified as a person of color in the Caribbean was a big deal. And we didn't, maybe for my generation, we didn't really understand the influence at the time, but it certainly made a big difference in how I was able to advocate for myself and things that I felt. Um, so Miss Charles was really like, coming up again in those spaces. <laughs> and even when I went to work, and so I went, my first job out of grad school, I got an assistant professor position at um, Trinity Washington University in Washington, DC. It's the sister school to Catholic University. It's down the street from Howard and about 10 minutes from, from the Capitol building. And Trinity used to be a all white women's Catholic college. Um, and it was almost on the verge of closing because of financial hardship and it, changed its mission and targeted and, and decided to target Latina and um, African-American women of DC 
and completely shifted the population of the school. So the school is now about 90% Latina. And it's one of the biggest schools for dreamers in the entire country. And it's one of the schools that works really hard to protect dreamers. And I am, I really had a good time working there. But again, you can have a good time working in a place and learn so much from working in that place and still feel the effects of institutional racism. It's not, it's not just because a place is good and you have good experiences doesn't mean that those things. So there were there were other issues that came up for me in that space, pay equity, um, all kinds of different issues. But for the most part, one of the reasons it was at Trinity that I spent a lot of time thinking about coming back home, right? Because at that time I was starting to come into my career and go into a traditional. I remember my advisors in, in grad school not wanting me to take that job because they felt like with my, my credentials, with my record, my academic record, um, and the things I had been doing, I could get employed at a big fancy school and they wanted me to strive for that. And they always imagined that I would be the one to go at my dream school to teach at Brown, right? At Brown University. Funny so they wanted me that. to- It's funny you say huh? that because Dr. Peters, when I interviewed Dr. Peters, who is the um, the president at Dominica called one of the things he said was that he was so surprised that this person wanted to come back to Dominica with all of her knowledge and everything. She could have picked any school in the entire world, you know, but she chose to come back home and he was always so impressed with you where that is concerned. You know, you know Dr. Peters, Dr. Peters always made jokes about because he didn't at first he was confused because he kept looking at my, I remember the first, first time we met, he kept looking at my CV and he kept looking at me and he's like, what happened? Are you in trouble? I'm like, no, I'm not in trouble. You can check, Google it. Um, because he couldn't understand, right? And my advisors in grad school had the same reaction when I first took that job at Trinity because it was a job. And you know, I like, I like money because I like nice things, but also things are expensive in general. Life is expensive and grad school, I recognize, especially when I moved back home, how many years my being sheltered in an academic environment, I wasn't working full time, earning at the same rate. And so my friends, and I come back home, I see friends from high school and so on. They're having houses, they have mortgage, they have all these things, they have families. And I'm just like, hey, I wanna go to the beach. Um, I'm going to rent this apartment and come to my bachelor pad and I'll make you some food and we'll have some drinks. Right. So my, I'm already feeling like 10 years behind sort of socially, because all of these things are happening. Not that I necessarily want any of those things, but I see why, right. I have made this investment. So at the point where I have to, um, gain the return on investment by getting that good job at Brown, I am saying, wait, I don't really want that job at Brown. Y'all can have it. And everyone is frustrated with me. Everyone is un thinking that I need to go back to Nancy and have some therapy and get and take care of my things and all of that. So the whole world is worried. But the job at Trinity was good because it really put me, connected me to a sort of diasporic sense of blackness. But it also helped me understand the population I was working with there resembled in a lot of ways the average, the average type of student I would encounter in Dominica. And I kept thinking, you know, I am spending, I spent all these years in school. I spent all this time doing this work only for me to go teach kids who have more money than my parents, more access than my, my sisters, more things, teach them how to be more excellent. And it doesn't seem fair, right? But it was also because the kind of work I wanted to do, I'm really into my research and my scholarship. 
the work I wanted to do was in the Caribbean. So I was at a place where it was both, yes, professionally, I need to be closer because traveling back and forth to the Caribbean is going to be very expensive. I'm not going to have as much time logistically. I'm not going to make the advances in my scholarship to keep that job at Brown if I do it this way, because it will be very stressful. I will have all these sort of logistic barriers that are professionally, I don't want to spend too much time going into it, but there were some professional barriers that would make it more difficult for me. But also at the point of, you know, mission and purpose, it didn't feel like it was the right thing. And so when I spent those three years at Trinity, one year, one summer I came back to Dominica to do research for my book and I spent three months and it was sort of a me, at the time I didn't tell many people, but I was testing out whether or not I could live back home after such a long time. For the 10 years or so I was in school, I didn't visit Dominica very often. Um, I came, my grandmother had passed away and I came for a funeral. I maybe came one time before that and a couple times after that. But I wasn't the type to be, I was either working a lot during my breaks or I was traveling for study abroad or some type of thing. So I was never the type of person to come back to Dominica every holiday. And most of that was because my, my core family was all, already outside of Dominica. So I didn't need to come home to reconnect, right? Um, mm. So... I tested out to see if I could make it and I felt very comfortable. I moved in to Esprit Drive and we had a good time and all of these things were fine. So I went back for a year and then in 2013, I moved back permanently. Um, and people still ask me why. And there are some days I have to admit, I still ask myself why, but I never, every time the opportunity presents itself for me to, to choose to go back, I always hesitate. And that's an important statement. I don't know, I, I say hesitate because I, I, I don't know that I'll always say no, but I hesitate every time because I find something valuable. What I've been able to do in Dominica in four years, five years of living there, I would never have been able to do as successfully um, from Brown or any other school in the United States. Secondly, moving to Dominica was the best thing for my career. And it made me have both visibility and credibility at places like Brown and Princeton and Duke University and those places. And so I, it was a win-win situation. Wow. You moved back to Dominica and you created Create Caribbean or you, yeah. you, that blew up for you. Um, why Dominica? Why Create Caribbean? Why code? Why? So, <laughs> yes, so Create Caribbean was really my way of making my own little university for myself. I didn't like that. One of the challenges that I had at this stage in my career, I was a very early career professor when I decided to leave the United States. Um, and a lot of people were nervous that it would mean, I was very nervous. I kept reading, I, I, I bought books, I downloaded articles, I was reading all these things about how you can sabotage your own career by taking a break or whatever. And at the time I moved, I had I was taking a sabbatical and I went, I thought I would go back after a year. I was like, I'm gonna stay here, I'm gonna try to figure out this book, I'm gonna apply to other schools like Brown, and maybe I'll go back. That was never gonna happen. When I got to Dominica and I started working, I started doing a number of things. I did I worked with the Nature Island Literary Festival for several years and on the organizing committee. I um and part of that program was to have um, a children's workshop where we would do um, creative writing and literacy and other types of arts with students. 
and I worked in the digital media workshop as part of that. But I was working in a field of study as part of my research called digital humanities. And digital humanities is basically what I described before, but it's also something that hadn't really been looked at in the Caribbean. It was happening in the United States, it was happening in Europe, it was happening in all these places and there was no space for it. In 2012, a group of us got together in Puerto Rico and decided we were going to make things happen in the Caribbean around this idea of digital humanities. And what that had to do with was preserving culture and cultural heritage, both tangible and intangible. So it involved a lot of access to libraries, museums, high schools, colleges, trying to get um, um, civil society to digitize and preserve their records, um, find oral histories and all kinds of information about um, our culture and our background, um, less told stories, and find a way to use the internet and use the power of the um, digital technology to not only capture that and preserve that, but to make tools that we can then transform into um, things that we want our students to have, right? How can I make, as an educator, how can I make Dominica's history or Caribbean history more broadly, more attractive to students um, in a way that makes them feel not just like, oh, they learn history, but also make them feel more empowered to be involved in, let's say, voting or um, learning what the policies are behind when the government announces they're going to make the first climate change, climate resilient nation. What does that mean, right? Not in a, not in a, 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 a um, critical way necessarily, but saying, I want my students to be equipped to understand those things and ask questions about them. And they can do a lot of those things. Right. And people and they can only do that if they're looking at their past and looking at where we were when we started and saying, okay, I see why this is, you know, one of the things my students learn when we've been doing these projects is how everybody over history have complained about how dirty Rosso is. So we've done several projects and we've gone into the like eighteen hundreds writing travel narratives by writers of the 1800s and looked at newspapers of the 1930s and the 1950s. And they, every time we do a project in a different era, we find some article saying Rosso Dirty. Rosso still dirty. Rosso's had a history of one Rosso has been historically dirty. So it's not, <laughs> yes, I would like to say, thank you, Mr. Tong, for washing the streets, but Rosso has historically been dirty. That is factual. It's in the in the record, in the historical record. But my student sense of this is the worst, most horrible nightmare of Rosso that they can experience has shifted, right? The type of energy they're putting on that has shifted once they realize mm, Rosso always been dirty. That's not a <laughs> right. So of course it puts things into perspective for them when they can have that. But I have to create a way for them to want to connect to that history in the first place, right? And so doing it. I, I wanted to use tools that they already have, they already like, and it's not, oh, just do what the young people are doing. My students can tell you that digital humanities is none of that. It's not about WhatsApp in, it's not about Facebook talk, it's not about any of those things. It's actually making sure that they understand the tools of the, what's behind the technology that you're using. How does it make you, as a person from a small place, disenfranchised from information? How do you not find yourself on the internet? Where do you see yourself when people code a program do you know that there are ways that that program is biased towards the United States or biased against you, right? Do you think about those things in the making of the things that you're using? I wanted to drive my students to be more consumed. I was already asking those questions for my own research as mm -hmm. I went into do historical preservation, newspaper preservation, things with Digital Library of the Caribbean that's based at the University of Florida. And I really wanted to find a way to kind of bring my, the things I liked and loved together um, and create an affiliation for myself because I was now independent. 
I wasn't even at Dominica State College yet, right? I was an independent scholar. And so Cray Caribbean was my design to bring those things together in a way that I could contribute to education in Dominica and the Caribbean. And I call it the Caribbean, Cray Caribbean, only because we are a one space, whether we like to think about it that, or that we are not. I am a Caribbean studies I scholar. Consider ourselves as one. Space. Right. Um, and I also, I also imagine a lot of the work that I'm doing here is shared among other islands. I'm working with a lot of scholars in Cray Caribbean itself. The programs that we run for, for the students are not everywhere yet, but our projects are everywhere in every island. We're working with scholars in every island. And so, and in Florida and in other places where the diaspora is. So that's really important. Um, but yeah, that was my intent. And then after that, I didn't imagine that I would, I would really partner with Dominica State College at the time. I really wanted it to be an independent space that was more geared towards libraries and high schools and so on, have these networks. But it made sense for a number of reasons to target college students. They, they're at a place where they are both open to learning, but also very strict in their views. They're, child, they're being in that place where they're, I have to vote this way because my mother votes this way and this is what we do in my house. Or I believe this type of Christianity because this is what we believe in my house. They really think they're firm in their beliefs and the minute you do this, everything shatters. And then you have an open slate and then you can talk to them and they might find that they agree with those things and they find that they, sometimes they find that they don't. So that was a place for me to kind of tap into that. And I approached Dr. Peters and he was super excited about it, especially the part about the research. So then I founded that. The children's program came after, again, because I was doing these children's workshops with different um, organizations. And I had spent a lot of time working, studying, and being in contact with Black Girls Code in the United States. I had um, written to volunteer from one of the chapters. Kimberly Bryant is a Black woman from San Francisco who founded it because of her daughter. And I was really, really interested in what they're doing. And at the time, I was sort of self-teaching um, I was in programs where I was learning code, I was learning programming, and I really wanted to find a space in Dominica where people, technology was a big deal. People were all talking about ICT when I first moved on to ICT and ICT, but it was all for money. It was all for business and e-commerce and all of these things that didn't include um, creative arts or creative production or including children in thinking about how they can be more producers rather than consumers of the internet. So then I branded Create and Code and the children's program came to be. Um, that was about a year um, into it. Why have you decided now that you have decided to leave Dominica? <laughs> like, like some people might say, you left them high and dry. <laughs> I didn't leave them high and dry. I'm sorry you guys feel that way still. Um, a lot of people, you know, I visited home this weekend. I was at home. I was in Dominica last weekend for for some work for a work event and. Uh, People were still coming up to me. People didn't realize that I left and I had to put them through the, the trauma of it all over again. Um, <laughs> that's how much I don't leave my house because four months have passed and nobody realized I was missing. That's great. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, but there's also the people who knew I left still talk to me about it and talk about, I went to visit the college and a lot of the staff there was like, Dr. Esprit, are you back? And this one lady tried, started talking to me about the problem she was having. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I never left. I was like, you know, I don't work here. I'm just visiting for the day. She's like, really? Why aren't you coming back? Because she just started talking to me like I was still there. So that was really funny. Um, I didn't plan to leave Dominica. I, I think I wonder if Hurricane Maria didn't happen, I would have left. I, 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 I 
Hurricane Maria changed a lot of things for a lot of people, but it certainly changed my, um, I was working a lot and I was working very hard in Dominica. My boss, my former boss can attest to that. Um, and so can my staff. But I was also getting to a point where I, I knew I was putting a lot of work and effort into um, my job, even into Create Caribbean and even and into other commitments that I had. And it, I wasn't feeling that I was making any moves. Like I was giving all of myself to these external things that were validating, people appreciated it. I had such good success stories in these environments. I didn't, I didn't leave in any bad place or in any bad way or anything like that. Um, but I, I was feeling restless. I was feeling like I needed a challenge. I had given myself five years when I said I came to Dominica and I will see if it worked. And it was exactly five years, almost by a month or so that I got an opportunity to apply for another position outside of Dominica. Um, and at first I was hesitant to apply for it just because I, when I imagine leaving Dominica State College, I imagine going straight full-time to build Create Caribbean even more. And I had committed to that. I had decided that long before I even applied for this job. Um, so I knew I was going to break from Dominica State College at some point and move on to make Create Caribbean what I knew its potential was. I was getting a lot of opportunities and a lot of offers from to partner with, not to break our partnership with Dominica State College by any means, but to, part, to add to that partnership with some really important grant and funding support from other bigger universities with a lot more um, financial um, prowess than we have. Um, and so I wanted to put my energy into building what was mine. Um, and then this job came along and I saw it as an opportunity for me to give myself more time for projects that were also important to me that would not create Caribbean, but it also gave me a lot of time it also gave me an opportunity to extend the reach of Create Caribbean at the same time. And that's one of the things I, one of the reasons I decided to move because I wanted more time. I was, I didn't have a lot of time for myself or for personal projects, like the books I was working on and so on. I didn't have a lot of time to do those things because I was so invested, especially when we were building back, I was so invested and rightly so. I really enjoyed my work. I really enjoyed the work that I do. I was happy. Um, to make that contribution. I really love working with my students. They know they get on my nerves, but I, I, I miss teaching. I miss being in the classroom. I miss having them knock on my window outside my door. My Dr. Esper, I know you're in there. What, what, what you doing? Answer me <laughs> this daily. Like they did this all the time. Um, or coming into my car and talking to me while I get my stuff out of my car. All the things that um, college students do that were annoying, but also very endearing to me. I miss that part of the job very, very much. Um, but I do know that this is a, everyone grows and changes. This was the next step in my career. It was a personal choice to do that. And it also gave me time to, you know, be able to build, to add lines to my CV in a really important way that would help me contribute to Dominica in bigger ways than I was doing now. Because if I had to stay in that place, I felt like I would sort of plateau and I wanted to be able to move and then be able to give back in a more substantive way. So that was a, that was really why I left. Mm, I'm, I'm gonna go to the, the, the chats that we've been getting. A lot of people have been commenting. Um, as uh, Carol Larock says, um, cool, keep giving back. Um, Lisa Latrus says, awesome stuff. Uh, Carol, 
Carla Drago says, very intelligent young lady, uh, greatness. Um, so a few people have been calling. I'm young and I'm feeling really nice about that because, you know, compared to the, the children who I got in trouble with, I feel old all the time now. I feel like I'm in a different world, in a different zone. So it's nice to be young again. Well, you're nice. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, but I just want to remind the folks who are actually really active, don't forget to share, share the link um, with, with someone so they can probably tag a friend that you feel that, you know, what she's saying might benefit them in, what, in some way, some way, some way or form. I find uh, I, I'm inspired a lot by what I see others do. And I feel uh, there are other people who might be just like me and might want get a little inspiration too you know so don't forget to hit that share button tammy eighteen is saying interesting um rashida augustine is saying thank you shyla for being here amazing we are of love um so all my friends are here so they're sending something it's definitely hi shida know you very very well um i want to talk um briefly about something um in your lines and uh, most people may not know that you also um, had to deal with depression yeah. a little bit. Um, tell us a little bit. Not a little bit. I tried to make it, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to, you know. But it's okay. Yeah. I, I wrote about it in the Chronicle for the entire country to see, so it's okay. It's, it's, it's a safe space now. So tell us a little bit about your struggle with depression. Well, here's my thing. Um, I, I was first diagnosed with depression, believe it or not. A lot of people don't know this. In 2005, when I was at um, the University of Virginia, and I think it was definitely, it was definitely influenced by the stressors that were going on at, in my transition to that new environment. I was in graduate school. It was a different pace than undergraduate degree. I was in a new, uh, uh, a racially tense environment. I was far away from, I was six hours from home and I didn't have a car yet that first semester. A lot of things were happening. And then I kept having these weird reactions. I kept having these dreams about like planes crashing and that was my 9-11 dreams, right? That was my anxiety dream. So it would yeah. always be watching planes crash. Um, and so all of these things were going on and I first got diagnosed there and I saw a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist um, offered me some medicine, right? And told me I have chronic depression and and it never really made any sense to me because I'm like, I'm not depressed, I'm just, I'm just sullen. Right? And I'm and this is where my West Indian sort of I, I often like to think that I am I am a little more progressive than the average West Indian, but there's where my West Indian superstition kicked in. I was like, I don't need no medicine. I'm just having a bad day. It'll go away. And I didn't like the medicine also because it kept it wasn't it wasn't right. So we have a lot of struggle in our culture about medicine and especially treating mental health, mental illness with, with medicine, with um, prescription drugs. And I was one of those people who reacted that way in the first instance. And it kind of went away. I didn't really address it. I just thought grad school is hard. People have to work hard. You will be sad and miserable and you will cry because it is hard and this is a challenging environment, but I'm gonna do my work and everything will be okay, it's temporary. So that was my initial reaction. And then my grandmother died and it was a pretty sudden death. It was one day she was sick, two weeks later she was dead. And so my grandmother was also my prime, I've talked about this before, and she was my primary parent. Well, I lived with her for all of my life. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that was, I, I handled it as was expected of someone in my, I, I, in my role in my family, right? And I say this in a reflective way, it was like, that was really, really dumb. Um, one of the things we talked about how smart children don't always get consequence, but one of the things that happens when you're really, you're highly intelligent and you're growing up as a child in a household, especially in our car, is that we think these people, these smart people have it together. They're invincible. And it's like, oh, she's okay, she's fine, or she'll be able to handle it. So we tell our children grown-up problems because they're really smart and they can talk to us. We talk to them about problems that we're having and we try to get their advice. And this is no shit to my parents, certainly, because my parents are certainly not the only parents or households who have done that. I see it all the time. I even see it with my peers who are now parents, right? Um, my child is quote-unquote wise beyond their years, so I must share with her like an adult. But it's also this thing that... What happens in that case is that you're not cared for. People are not paying attention to your, your sort of emotional cues because you always, you position yourself, you program your mind to always be okay because that is the position that you take in the family once you learn that from a very young age. And you were not um, And I was okay, right? I was, I was okay. I was, everyone kept asking if I was okay and I kept saying yes. And that lasted for, I moved to a new school, I was in my program. I was doing very well. That lasted for a long time until it came time to write my dissertation so I could get out and nothing was happening. And I had never been stuck with work before. Like I always do my work. That's the only thing I, I am certain I can do without human interference is my work. Right. And so when that wasn't happening, I had to address it. Um, and I was, I was very, I was sick for a while. It was one weekend I stay at my home. I watched Criminal Minds for a whole weekend. I, love I, I, I didn't grow up watching violent, extreme violence and stuff like that. So I was, I'm never somebody who likes those kinds of things. I don't like action movies. Mm -hmm. I don't like anything with extra blood. I, I, I'm good. Give me my little brain movies. I like that. Um, and I'm watching Criminal Minds all weekend, like a crazy person in my house. I'm dreaming of people stabbing me in the gut. So I got up and I went to the therapist and I told her my grandmother died. And she said, you know, she died yesterday. And she, I'm like, no, she died four years ago. Right, um, and that began my journey with my, with everybody in my in my life's best friend called Nancy. Right, and this this little white woman changed my life. Um, but because I'll give me an official diagnosis that it wasn't just depression. I have um, general generalized anxiety disorder, and so it's the anxiety that leads to depression. People have this misconception that depression happens because you're not happy you have things going wrong in your life or you just kind of deal with stress. The times that I am most depressed are the times when really good things are happening to me. Wow. Right? Um, and I know there are people, Vin, this is on the call, she can probably, she's a psych major, she can, she can speak to that. A lot of the times that I go into depressive states is when I have really good news or I have a lot of activity or I have a lot of stimulation around success. That's always my trigger, right? Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that anything is wrong with you. I'm not a person who is chronically unhappy, but I look back in my life and look at the ways that my personality, that I have had this depressive, even when I was a teenager, even when I was even younger than that, and we sort of not paying attention to those things. What people used to just call being grumpy or being certain things was me being in a place where I wasn't able to kind of deal with the all of the stimuli around me. And, and that manifests itself in two ways. It's 
it's anxiety that leads to me retreating and then feel, being in a low phase. So it's, and I have incredible somebody who is so controlled in public or has to be controlled and manage other people. Dealing with anxiety can be really stressful because you have to be responsible at all times. And I am, I am somebody in my daily life who is meticulous, who is keen to detail, who is all those things. But sometimes everything is just a little too loud and I have to kind of take a step back from it. Um, so I am, I'm happy to talk about that because you will be surprised at most students who come into my office and say, Dr. Esprit, I just want to sleep. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't do my work. And they don't understand. They, they, think, they think they're lazy. They call, I've called myself lazy. I cannot, every time I say it, it's a joke because I, I, I don't know what that even means in my life for the amount of work I do every day. And I still think of myself as lazy sometimes when I'm going through this phase. But I share that with young people all the time because you will be surprised the number of people who are going through it. And then there is the additional fact that sometimes their depression or whatever mental health concern that is going on for them is linked to trauma, right? And every time there is a reminder of that trauma, they go through it all over again. I certainly don't have any specific trauma to recall um, in my life or growing up or anything like that, but I know if it's very difficult for me dealing with, a, with, with depression in this way, certainly someone who has gone through something very traumatic is having a harder time and probably needs someone to say to them, hey, I know that feeling. Students come yeah. to my office and they think, you know, Dr. Esprit is so perfect. She can do all these things. I want to be like her. Oh, I cannot get my life together. Something's wrong. And I have to tell them, guys, do you know, like last night I was chewing off my nails and like having a panic attack because I couldn't get this thing done on time. And it changes their perspective right away. Well, I'm glad that you, you can speak openly about that because I, depression, well, once you're from the Caribbean, depression means you're crazy. That's just how people... I might be crazy too, but that's not why. <laughs> right? No, but, but that's how, you know, and if you hear somebody says, oh, I've gone to see a therapist, you're like, crazy? You know, that's the first thing people, it's so taboo. It's still something that people don't look at and, and take seriously. But over the years, I've, I've learned that um, as much as you take care of your financial health, because you work hard because you want to make money, you take care of your home, um, you take care of your kids, you also need to take care of your mind, you know? And and people, we need we need people but here's to the thing. going to therapy. Here's the thing about, do you know how many hours, I was saying that to somebody the other day, you know how many hours depression takes out of your life? You know how many hours of productivity you lose during depression? You know how many hours of your time with your family you lose because you don't want to see anyone and you don't want to talk and you're, you want to sleep all the time? You, that is time that you could be spending. And it's amazing when you come out of a depressive state and you feel your, yourself and you feel your energy and you feel like yourself, you realize, oh my God, I was really not doing well. I was sick because three days have passed and I didn't really do anything. I couldn't wash my own dishes. I couldn't like make my bed um those are important things to do and you don't you don't count them until you're out of that situation right so it's always get your stuff out what do you have me well you know i always tell myself when i have when i'm super rich and i can be extra bougie one of the things i'm going to do is gift everyone therapy because i think if everybody gets themselves together i will be fine because there are a lot more crazy people on the outside um <laughs> but I, what I do, I reach out to people who um, are close to me and understand what I'm going through. 
I I have therapy. People, if you can afford it, get Talkspace. It is fun. It works. Get Talkspace. I'm a big advocate of Talkspace. It's kind of expensive. It's on it's on the U.S. dollar. I think it's cheap for therapy because an average, a therapist in the U.S. costs about a hundred to one hundred and fifty U.S. dollars. So comparatively, Talkspace has a service and it can be done virtually. So you have text, talk, video chat, and and calling. Um, Talkspace is really good, and because I've been living outside of the United States um, with less than stellar insurance in some situations, um, that's a very good option. But it's still, if you're converting your dollar, it's still a little pricey. The cheapest one starts at 59 US dollars a week and you pay by the month, right? But Dominica does have therapists. I'm speaking to people in Dominica. If you're in the US or somewhere else where you have health insurance and you can reach out to somebody, get someone regular to talk to. This has nothing to do with you being crazy or you not being able to take care of yourself. I work a very, and especially when I was in Dominica, still so, I work a job where I have to be responsible for people. I'm responsible for other people's education. I have a lot of responsibilities. Many of our young professionals are working jobs, high demand jobs where they have to perform at a certain level all day, all the time. That's taxing on your nerves in general. Forget about if you're not feeling well, right? Mm -hmm. You need somebody to decompress with. There are things that you can go, you're going through. You know, a lot of us, we, we were talking about this upward mobility issue earlier. You know, some of us come from families that haven't adjusted to our success or of, or think our success is community property in a very destructive and damaging way. So a lot of, of, of my friends, a lot of people I know are responsible for really taking care of their families and not being able to enjoy the fruits of their labor, no matter how hard they work, how many degrees they get. Um, you know, I'm lucky. My aunts still buy us gifts. Like they still come with packages from work and we're grown, right? Um but it's but, not uh, everybody. For if some people figure that their children go to school, that's their insurance, um, that's their insurance policy, and they're going to milk it from time. So the people, these first generation professionals who are working, are under so much stress because they not only do they want to take care of themselves and they possibly have children, but they have to constantly be looking back and um, meeting everyone else's expectations for what they're supposed to contribute to them and not being able to enjoy what they've earned, right? And that can be a very, in our communities, in our culture, that can be a very stressful, breaking that cycle of over-dependency is a real hard thing. And sometimes you need a professional to tell you, you know what, you need to divorce your family now. It's time, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, <laughs> those conversations need to happen. You have to set boundaries. You have to make it clear what is acceptable and what is not. So you can have yourself left to be able to help them when it's actually necessary, right? And that's one of the big lessons of that, right? Well, you seem to, you seem to have it together, and I'm happy that you could speak to us about that. I, I think it's important for a lot of young people to hear you speak openly about, about your situation. And I, I think it's something that a lot of people, people have health insurance. Like I know a lot of young people who are working and they have health insurance, and they don't take advantage of the fact that hey, you can actually go see a therapist, and you don't have to be—you don't have to feel like you're going through something right at this moment. You go see somebody. You go in and you talk. I remember my sister, my younger sister. She told me, you know, she went, she went to see a therapist, and she's like, um, I started talking, and I just started talking, talking, and then she's like, when I catch myself, I was like, I'm feeling so much better. She's like, if you need to, you know grow you know and and it's something that I, I i like to encourage it's something that 
I feel if you have health insurance, take advantage of it. If you don't, if you can afford to, take advantage of it. Whatever you need to do, um, mental health, without it, you cannot do shit. You really you can't. Uh, right? And, and, and it's important. Um, I'm happy to hear you speak you know, on that. And I hope other people can the page and, and decide to take care of themselves. Yeah, and if right you're a young person and you cannot afford therapy or you don't have insurance, reach out to somebody close to you and ask them to find find you some help. There are people, Dominica has a lot of counselors. People don't know about them, but they exist. Um, they have lots of licensed counselors, people working in this field. You can find out about them, ask around. You Let's use social media for stuff like that. Um, connect connect um, your, your friends to to counselors and so on who can help them talk through some stuff. I know this is a difficult time. There's a lot of difficult stuff on the news right now in Dominica about uh, women and girls. And some girls who may not be speaking up may want to talk to somebody because they might be triggered by some of the conversations that they're hearing. And it's important for us to make stuff available to them, let them know where they can go to get some help. Thank you very much for that. Um, um, we're about to wrap up. We have a few, just a few more things to talk about. And with Dr. Esprit, I just want to remind you guys, hit the share button. And also, if you'd like to follow her, all her social media links are below. It could be below on some, above on others. depends on the device you're looking at um, the show from. So um, just check for the heading, wherever the heading is in the where You see her contact, her Twitter, her Facebook. You can follow her. And I'm sure she'll probably go back on the chat after if any of you ask any questions. Um, and she could probably, you know, answer you one-on-one. -on -one. She, she's that type of person. So I'm sure she probably will do that. And if she doesn't, you can always reach out to her. And I'm sure she'll be able to guide you. Help, right? She's all about helping people, especially helping her island people. She's all about that. She has some exciting things um, happening for her. And I hope it doesn't cause her any unnecessary anxiety. So she has... Manuscripts are awaiting publication. Um, tell us a little bit about about your, your two. Oh. Well, I was about to tell you. Well, it's three. I have so much work to do. I am so tired. Um, one of them is more academic. It's a, I'm co-editing a volume on digital humanities with some um, U.S. people. So that's sort of the the the, the more boring one. <laughs> one of them I have been working on for a very long time, and I took a break from it to um, do. Create Caribbean, and I put the book aside for a while, and I'm now doing it. I actually submitted a chapter and finished another one today, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Um, I am writing about reading in the Caribbean, which is my favorite thing, of course. So I wanted to find other readers like me, people who were sort of inspired by what they got to read, um, and it's a sort of a, it's called West Indian Readers: A Social History, and it is reflecting on how we as Caribbean people came to be this aspirational people because of our experience and the, the importance that books and reading were given in our lives um, from, from emancipation into the contemporary moment. And we're looking at different things from we look at literary festivals, we're looking at libraries and their role, we look at newspapers, things like Nibs and I and things like that. So I'm looking at a, all different types of reading formats um, in this book and I'm Hoping it will be out by mid next year. I'm in the talks with the publishers right now. I'm finalizing some things. I can't give too many details, but there is a publisher in mind. There's there are things actually happening right now that are really big on this book. The other project is my procrastination project. I call it 
because anytime I didn't want to write my real book, I was doing work on this book. And it's a, a, a essay collection. And some of these essays actually started when I used to write my column in the newspaper um, on the That's What She Said. And therefore, they're the, that's a book I wish I had when I was a, a young girl in Dominica growing up. And it's a collection of essays about how to be a girl and a woman in Caribbean in a time like this. So I reflect on different aspects of girlhood and that includes personal narratives, but also reflections from other people, stories that have been shared with me. And so these are about 10 to 12 essays that are in this collection. Um, so that one is, is coming out as well. And it's really for young adults and it's for young boys too. I want men to be really invested in this book because I think we all have a hand to play in um, being responsible for each other and accountable to each other. So it's for young adults of all the genders to enjoy, but it's about specifically about young girls' experience in the Caribbean. Wow, what happens next for you? More work. I have a big, <laughs> I have a, Cray Caribbean has a big project going on right now. It's a Caribbean partnership with um, writer Unia Kempadu and we just um, heard from Duke University has been supporting us on this project as well, the Forum for Scholars and Publics at Duke University. And it's called Carrie Sealand and it's an environmental um, humanities project and it's a digital project. There are many phases to it. It's, we've been working on it literally since Tropical Storm Erica in 2015. Um, and it's about making young people responsible for the history of the environment, the um, future of our country in the age of climate change and also the impact on humanity, human lives, and their interactions with each other as a result of these natural changes. So that's a big, big project that we're working on. It has some really cool technology included in it that we are building from scratch. Um, so that's taking up all my time while I have my, my day job at the University of the West Indies and um, this book project. So I'm very, very busy. I would like to 2019, I am going to spend my coins on more personal travel. I travel a lot, but most of the time I get on a plane these days, it's for work. In the first, first half of next year, I have a trip a month for some conference or some presentation or something. And I, although I, it's nice to travel for work and have the opportunity and privilege to do that, I really would like to take a real vacation. I haven't done that in a long time. Um, so I have a bucket list and I am, trying to hit my bucket list. Um, I am going to Cuba. That's on my bucket list. Um, South Africa is on my bucket list. Wow. Um, one particular town in France is on my bucket list because one of my closest friends lives there and I want to see her. Um, I, I studied in France before, so I've, I've been there before, but I want to go back um, to a town I've never been. And um, I want to go back to South America. I love South America. I had a really good time in Ecuador when I visited and I just went to Mexico. I also want to go back to Mexico, but actually want to do, um, to go to see all of the indigenous um, communities in Mexico next time I go. I didn't get to do that. I was working. So um, yeah, it's a lot of travel for me and a little more, selfie taking. I don't take a lot of pictures and my sister has been getting on my nerves about it. So I'm going to try to document myself a little better in the new year. That's one of my challenges. I tried last year, but that didn't work out. I tried to promise myself that 2018 would be the year I would photograph myself, but it didn't happen. Um, 
like I'm so appreciative of you, you know, and 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 the fact that you are so open, you are so given, you have helped so many young people, not just young women. And I think that people should be inspired by you. They should take a page out of your book. They should reach out to you. They should. I mean, you have so much knowledge. I mean, sometimes I I want to almost say, girl, you know too much. You know, like you. Oh well. A wealth of knowledge, and, wealth of useless knowledge, according to my students. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everybody can 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 get something out of something that you say. Yes, guys, I'm so sorry that we got disconnected. Something went wrong, and I don't know what happened. This is actually my longest ever show. Every show, every show for the last couple of shows, I've been saying this is my longest show. Uh, this one is my longest. I like, kept the time and I was going to be like 90 minutes and then I'm done with jail and then now look at the time. Yeah. I was checking the time on the other on the other episodes. I was just like, oh my God, like, like, um, I don't even know where the time flew. Like I looked at the time and it was like, it was, it was past an hour, like it's an hour and 15 and I'm like, we're not even like halfway there. How do I just, I just cut off the show? Shoot, we're on Facebook Live. We're going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I'm, I'm so appreciative that you could take time because time for you is so important and you've taken the time out of your schedule to come here and talk with us and to share with us and to, to share with young people to share about your experiences to talk to educate someone out there and i am so grateful to you for coming on um Kakuti, and and being you being unapologetic being the phenomenal woman that you are and um if you never feel appreciated in life, know that I appreciate you as an individual. I really do. Um, I mean, I chose you to be one of my seven, six, seven years. Rock, hello. Kelly! <laughs> you know? So um, I think you are super amazing and that you, you've touched so many lives that you don't even know of. And, um, and I wish you so much more. Blessings upon blessings. And I can see so many good things coming out for you. I will probably not read your book. I will probably get the audio version of it. So I hope that you will sit and you'll read the entire book to me so I can hear your voice. I'm just saying that you don't pay some random person to do the audio. If you're gonna I read too fast. They will not read my own book. I will have the recording for your book for you. Yeah. <laughs> so um I, I I've fallen in love with audiobooks and and I right now I'm I'm reading Becoming. Um, that's what I started. Yes. I just started it on Audible. I'm doing becoming and uh, and that's Michelle Obama and, I, and I, I'm almost almost done. I'm like I go through it so much quicker than if I had to actually pick up the book because I could be doing stuff and hearing you know like just hearing it go and I can do laundry or or you know um, combing baby's hair or doing something. You I'm know? such a nerd. I read while I'm doing. I'm listening to audiobook. I read different books. So I have like I challenge myself to see how many books I can do in a day. I have badges from Audible and everything. Wow. For streets. It's amazing. But thank you very, very much for um, with us. I really appreciate that. And I'm, and I'm thankful to everyone who stayed on throughout um, and, and they were never bored. Um, because like she said, she does have a little bit of humor. And I think it was acquired for a lot of you. So you had to stick around. <laughs> you stuck around till the very end. Thank you very much to those of you who tuned in. I want to shout out my regulars like um, Elon out there in um in miami well actually she's in florida who's always tuned in and uh fake who's always in from from the uk i don't know how these people stay up oh yeah 
like they say of um shannon um vigilant is another one who always listens every single sh every single show and she's in france where there's a time difference and they still come on you know and uh, and to you thank you very much again for coming on um i appreciate what you've done i appreciate all your work and i can only see so much more great things for you in the not too distant future and i know once you become greater than you already are it's not just for yourself because dominica will get you know will, will also feel the get the rewards you know as it comes that's the thing that's the problem with us you know we always want to try everything we've done what i'm doing so. huh. those national self-esteem we need to build it you back know, up and the, the, the problem is that it is just so bad eh, sometimes it's okay it's all in it i mean you have to you have to be ready to face i didn't realize that people you know sometimes i take for granted and i will say thank you for reminding me of that because especially after this week it was also a moment of humility i don't I forget sometimes because I just want to stay home and read my books how many people are listening and looking at what I'm saying to guide their decision making, how many people are interested or looking at me and the way I move in the world as an example. And sometimes because I don't want that spotlight on me, I act as if it's not there, but that's not how it works. And so there is a certain amount of responsibility that you have for, yeah, yeah, people cry down Dominica, but it's not Dominica, we all need to kind of lift ourselves up. And when we do that, we will all see that reflected in each other, you know? So I hope that's one of the things that comes from even shows like yours. I'm really happy that you have it so that people can look at people they perceive as, oh, this person is doing some great things. I either am annoyed by it or I'm really looking up to it like I cannot achieve it. And they will come a little bit closer to that experience and feel like, okay, I can do this too. This person is my peer. Me and this person might have something in common and connect on that level as Dominican people, you know? Uh, thanks, Shyla, for, for joining us. And uh, thanks to all of you who can only tell you not late, but I'll listen to the whole thing after. Someone who just said that they're late. Uh, Romance, I appreciate people. Love. So, um, yes, that's fam. Thank you very much, Shyla. Thanks to all of you. And those of you who are okay, remain better than never. You can always look at the entire video on my page. It will be there. Until they probably let me down. Um, it will also be 24 hours on my site as well, joseph.com. Um, uh, thanks to everyone. And don't forget to get your lipstick if you're at the velvet from the glass. You know, so um, I saw Emily and M was picking up my lip and that's my lips. <laughs> so Emma News says my lips are hot, so it must be hot. It must be hot. She has the news. <laughs> Um, so if you need that, that it's called uh, you look for you look for it, right? Or you look for that. You look for that is what it's called by Sasha, um, and it's about the glam in Rosa. So you can go and get it. Take it easy. You can go and get it um, uh, next week once they they open up on on Monday. Thanks, guys. Everyone who joined us, thank you so very much. Um, thank you, everyone. Thanks, thanks again, Shyla. And until next time, I'll be having one more show, I think, for the for the rest of this year. Um, and so in the next two weeks, my next, I'm, not, I'm I might have another show. I'm not hundred percent sure yet, um, because I do have one more opening, but I'm, I feel like fumbling around the guests and stuff. So we'll see if what happens. Um, and in the next show, I'll tell you that the last one or not. Um, but I want to encourage you. 
uh, to go back and listen to all the other past shows. Um, if you feel me too, if you'd like to catch up. Um, I have had some interesting guests so far, I must say. And um, and you can learn so much from a lot of them. And like like Dr. Esprit, you know, they have a world of, of advice, a world of, of knowledge, and a world of experience that they can share with you. And and I hope that I can continue to do this for you into the new year if this becomes my last year. Thanks again, guys. Remember to drink a little cacao tea wherever you are. If you're in the cold, like me, keep yourself warm sometimes. Um, if not, cacao tea does make you feel, does make you sweat. And, <laughs> and once, you can, once you start to sweat, you cool down, right? <laughs> Take care. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>